This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranberg and very happy to be back after a couple of weeks away and there is a lot to cover in today's show. Much-loved Australian young adult classic Looking for Alibrandi was published close to three decades ago, but author Melina Marchetta has continued to produce engaging stories, building up a cast of convincing characters, some of whose lives span over several books. Her latest, The Place on Dalhousie, focuses on a strained relationship between two women forced to share a house haunted by what they've both, both lost. I caught up with Melina on her book tour a few weeks back and I'll be playing the interview later this hour. But very soon I'll be joined by another well-loved Australian writer. Andrea Goldsmith will join me to talk about her latest novel, Invented Lives, which follows a young Russian Jewish emigre as she makes a new life and finds unexpected love in Melbourne, still mourning her mother's death and processing the legacy of political purges, suspicion and anti-Semitism and those things that uh, have affected her family back in Russia. Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now it's the mid-1980s in Russia. Glasnost and Perestroika have done little to change the dour tone of everyday life. And 24-year-old Galina Kogan has just lost her mother to a stroke. She's been thrown into fear and uncertainty. The pair had planned to emigrate to America, and as Russian Jews, leaving the country was now an option, though motivated by anti-Semitism. But after a young Australian, Andrew Morrow, literally bowls Galena over in the street, she decides on a whim that she will leave Russia behind, but instead of America, she will head to Australia. And so begins Invented Lives, a novel by Andrea Goldsmith that delivers Delve, sorry, delves into the psyche of a recently arrived Australian migrant, a new life and perhaps love, and the troubled history she leaves behind. Andrea Goldsmith joins me now in the studio to talk about her book and the story behind it. Andrea, welcome to Backstory. Hi, Mel. Great to be here. Now, I really got very involved in this book straight away. Uh, it's, you know, the characters are extremely compelling. Uh, Galena's particular sort of issue where she's sort of you know in a country where she feels a little lost and at sea she has you know lost the one kind of real support in her life her mother uh, but she's really confused about where to go and you know the outside world is completely unknown you've painted an incredibly compelling picture here I'm just really fascinated to know where did this story come from oh fiction um there were many things that that fed invented lives. The main one was back in 2013 when this novel um, started to form. Um, Our policy, the Australian policy towards asylum seekers and the whole offshore processing thing um, was very, very big in the news. And the whole notion of exile, that nobody would willingly choose exile, seemed 
obvious to me, but clearly not to our political leaders and to a lot of the Australian public. And I, I just wondered where our compassion had gone to, that exile being nothing that you would actually willingly choose. Exile is the option when choice has run out. And people would speak of queues. I mean, if your life is in danger, you're not going to line up in a queue. Um, so I was very, very much thinking about exile and um, being appalled at um, what our country was doing. Um, and at the same time, I was reading about Putin's Russia. And you can't understand what's happening in, in Russia today without going back to the Soviet years. So there was this wonderful mishmash mingling of things, of a concern that was happening to me here in Australia now. And I will say that my books are fiction. I make up the characters. I love making up characters. But the one thing that is autobiographical are the ideas that are explored through the novel. And in this particular novel, the notion of exile in its broadest sense is explored and what constitutes home. It's really, uh, you know, there's a really great kind of um, sense of Melbourne in the 1980s as well. I have to say uh, paperback books and readings both make cameos early on, which delighted me somewhat. Um, they've obviously been around for quite a while as these incredible institutions, so that, that was lovely. Um, Really, Galena is quite a pioneer in her own way in terms of the decisions that she makes. She sort of really does, you know, kind of quite bravely push herself into this new world, um, make decisions about where to go based on, you know, things that she's heard or seen. She chooses Colton because she sees a... a a clip of this incredible sort of cosmopolitan city populated by Italian immigrants and she decides that's where I'm going to go. She tries to tough it out with this kind of Russian stoicism, um, do it by herself, but she soon finds that, that doing it by herself isn't really going to work. I, I, think, I think that she is very strong and very resilient, as um, she says it one stage Soviet life has actually made her like that but the fact is that she is in her mid-twenties she is all alone and here's the notion um, here the notion of invented lives the title of the book comes in that we have our public personas and she looks great and she's she's surviving and she's taking Australia and in, in her stride but what fiction allows us to do, and particularly fiction like mine, which is written from the point of view of characters, is we can get below the surface. We can sort of unzip the characters, as it were, and we see into their hearts and minds. And we know the difficulties that she's having, though her exterior suggests that she's managing extremely well. I mean, she gets a, a job, talking about the 1980s, I loved the jobs I gave her um, have disappeared in the digital age. Um, she has two part-time jobs. Well, that hasn't disappeared. Um, the first is she does pen and ink drawings with a little bit of coloured wash um, for a, um, a group that supply pictures to real estate agents of the houses they were to, 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 to sell. And this is how real estate was done, how, how, pay, how houses were portrayed back 
in the 80s. So she does the drawings there. And her other job is she um, does the pictures on the front of home sewing kits. Um, she, who couldn't um, sew to save her life. Um, and again, that, of course, has been all computerised now. So she's got a job, she's got a place, she's got all of that sort of thing. But um, sometime after she arrives in Melbourne, it's a good year later, um, she actually realises that she's really homesick. She doesn't want to go back to Russia, but she is sickening for home. It's a really fascinating element that, that you know, the sickening for home really is also a, seemingly a processing of this incredible trauma that not just, you know, her immediate experience of really having to leave everything she knows, having lost her mother at far too young an age uh, and, you know, all those things as well, but really the history of what happened in Russia. And this is one of the wonderful features of this book is that it does take you under the skin of history that might be familiar to some people. Uh, in fact, to most people, it's really the, the history of modern Russia, but seen through the eyes of a very particular family with a particular experience. They are outsiders in Russian culture as Jews uh, and they have to then, you know, accommodate all these other elements. It's a really interesting observation that's made, I think, at one stage by Galena about coming to Australia and considering how this new place feels free and she always thought that freedom would feel a particular way, but but what she finds instead is where she knew what her place was in Russian society and it wasn't a comfortable one. In Australia, she the paradoxes of who she is and how she's treated are very confusing. Can you talk about this? Because I found it a particularly interesting element. I... I, I the freedom thing is um, is is an interesting one. She actually says that um, there's so much freedom here in Australia, and freedom is not the carefree, ha happy-go-lucky state she thought it would be. In fact, she says so much freedom, it feels like nobody's looking after you. She's come from an authoritarian state, so. Um, it was really interesting as an author to um, actually portray our known Australian ways of life and being through the eyes of a stranger. So, for example, uh, once she gets back, once she gets to Australia and, 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 and she's settled and she realises that she's actually very lonely, she contacts Andrew Morrow, the young Australian mosaicist who literally, as you said, bowls her over in Leningrad. Andrew is much the same age as she is. He is a, an artist, he's a mosaicist, and he was working with mosaicists in Leningrad for three or four months, which is um, why he was there. He is also a deeply shy man. So in a sense, he's in exile from the sort of social community that the rest of us take for granted. He, um, anyway, she contacts Andrew and through Andrew she also meets his seemingly perfect middle-class parents who have both invented lives. What you see on the surface is, is, is not what's underneath. There's yearning and there's longing and there's also parallel lives, I, I have to say, in the case of um, Andrew's father. But seeing these people through her eyes... she. One day she goes to um, Andrew's father's factory, Leonard. Leonard makes library supplies. Again, that's probably all computerised these days. Um, 
And she stands at the front of the factory, which is in a Melbourne um, um, uh, sort of Collingwood area, and she stands in front of the factory and she thinks, oh, it's so small. And she then says, well, small compared to what? Russian industry where everything is gargantuan. So, And the whole notion of private ownership is something that is really, really strange to her. She goes to the Morrow home and to her it's palatial. Mm-hmm. There's Everybody's got their own room. There's a whole room for laundry. She finds this quite astonishing. And having that stranger's view actually causes people like us to reflect on who we are. Another thing she notices, um, she, she's... Um, um, Bob Hawke is the Prime Minister at the time and um, he's described as our larrikin Prime Minister and she looks up, her English is very good, uh, better than most Australians in fact, she says, or someone says, um, she looks up larrikin in the dictionary and she cannot understand how this would be a desirable characteristic in a political leader. So it's these sorts of things and the whole time she's kind of walking this this tightrope between learning about the new country, wanting to feel at home in it, but finding it very, very odd and also finding that the identity that she's brought with her formed by being um, a Soviet citizen and ethnically Jewish just doesn't work for her here. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm joined today by Andrea Goldsmith, who's talking about her new novel, Invented Lives. I do want to kind of pick up on some of what you've just discussed, uh, because, you know, this whole notion of the larrikin prime minister that that uh, I guess Bob Hawke was seen as, um, I think there is some commentary made by Galena that, you know, he is this Rhodes Scholar, like an Oxford scholar, uh, but seems to play that down. And, and she makes these observations as we've, as we've touched on about the paradoxical nature of a lot of things in Australia. But this struck me particularly because you get some light shed on some of uh, Galena's family history, um, the history of Russia and how intellectuals um, are being kind of stamped out, I guess, in a sense. That's, uh, you know, these sort of this this inheritance is very much a part of her. So she has a real sensitivity as well for this weird cultural cringe that Australia has. Um, their strange forms of racism, their strange anti-intellectualism. There's a lot of tides that are running through this. And so I thought it was very, very interesting that you chose uh, for Andrew Morrow to be someone who's into this very classical form of art in mosaics. Why did you pick that? Because it's something of a metaphor, I feel. Um Yes, it's also an author indulgence too. Um, I'm, I knew I had to give Andrew a solitary profession. The, the sorts of jobs I give my characters, I spend a lot of time with them because I do think that work and identity are very, very much fused. And being such a shy young man, um, he, um, I, I wanted him to have a solitary job. And um, so I got to the artist and then I have a real interest in mosaics. I, I just think it's a really, really fascinating form of art. I mean, all of these... One, yes, it's ancient. Um, and I, I just... The idea of all of these little pieces that go to make a cohesive whole, I've always been fascinated by it. So it meant that um, I had to, you know, go and look at a lot of mosaics around the world. It also worked well with the idea of invented lives, that, that fracturing 
of the self, but coming back to make a whole. So, I mean, that's the reason why he was a mosaicist, but also... At the time that he knocks Galena down in the street and thereby actually changes his own life, um, they were renovating in in Leningrad this fabulous church um, on the spilled blood, which is an extraordinary uh, building in the middle of Leningrad. The entire interior of this huge place is mosaic. There's an odd sense of uh, kind of you know, strange serendipity to the description of that, uh, the renovation of that church, while in the background there's a lot of suffering and hardship going on, which very much uh, echoes what's happening, I guess, with the Notre Dame right now and, and the, the feelings that people have about, you know, foregrounding, um, you know, dealing with this classical architecture and rebuilding while there are all these other um, necessary, uh, I guess, things that are that are being completely neglected that are much more humanist. You know, it's, it, it, it's like nothing ever changes. Um, the, a lot of Leningrad was, um, was blown to smithereens um, after, during, during the Second World War and the people suffered unbelievable in the, the, the 900 day siege of, of Leningrad that happened then. But after the war, everybody was so poor and everybody did without, but a lot of the old buildings were renovated and, and we're talking jewels and, I mean, done at such cost. And it's this whole thing of national identity compared with personal identity. And again, it's something I'm sort of fairly interested in the book. We're running very quickly out of time, but I would love you to, to give us a little taste of the book. Is there any chance of a short reading, perhaps? Well, perhaps um, the I'll read from the very, very beginning. Um, as you said, um, Galena's mother has died and Galena bangs into Andrew on the way home from the hospital and she arrives back at the tiny flat that um, she and her mother share. The door opens and immediately she's drawn inside and embraced by well-wishers. Everyone is sad, everyone needs consolation, but everyone knows a daughter's loss is greater than theirs. More people arrive and soon the flat is jammed with friendly faces and rousing memories. Despite the cold, the door to the balcony is open to draw out the cigarette smoke and the heat of so many bodies. There's plenty of food and several bottles of Georgian wine and no shortage of vodka despite Gorbachev's absurd prohibitions. People share stories about Lydia. There's laughter as well as sadness, but with the passing hours, it's the laughter that dominates. The night deepens, the food is eaten, the alcohol is drunk. It's close to 11 o'clock when everyone finally leaves. Nadia, her mother's best friend, helps with the tidying up, then makes them some fresh tea. They sit at the table where she, Galena, and her mother have spent so much time, and where Nadia and her mother have spent so much time. But never before has it been just her and Nadia sitting here together, and it occurs to her that it is these small, everyday happenings that will drive home the fact that her life has cruelly and irrevocably changed. Nadia tucks a fresh cigarette between her lips and reaches for Galena's hands. As soon as Lydia is laid to rest, she says, Galena will be going back to work, even earlier if she's up to it. Work will help, she says. Work will distract. She takes a deep drag of her cigarette and ash falls to the table. And Galia, no more talk of emigration. It's better to remain in the country you know, where you yourself are known. 
And when there's no response, she adds, life must go on, Galanochka, and life here is not so bad, not like it used to be. Nadia continues to talk about the future, but Galina is not listening. She's caught by Nadia's face, a face so familiar she's not really looked at it before. It's as if a hessian sack has been stuck to the skull and neck, leaving holes for the eyes and mouth. This rough, mustardy fabric skin falling in folds and creases is the map of Nadia's life. It reveals poor nourishment and too many cigarettes, too little money and too much vodka, too much work for too little satisfaction. She loves Nadia, but now, suddenly, looking at this woman she's known her entire life evokes a terrible fear. Might this be the face of her own future? Nadia must have realised that Galina's thoughts were elsewhere because finally she stops talking. She pours more tea for them both, lights another cigarette, and when she speaks again, her voice is gentle, it's kind. So, Galia, what do you plan to do? I'm still going to emigrate. The words come of their own accord. Nadia stares at her sadness and pity are etched in the crumpled face and suddenly she's apologising. It was wrong of her to have raised the subject of the future. It's far too early to make decisions. Now Galina reaches for Nadia's hands. She holds them gently between her own. Her voice, however, is firm. I'm going to emigrate to Australia. The word fits uneasily in her mouth. She has decided to move to a country whose name has never before passed her lips. Andrea Goldsmith, thank you so much uh, for that reading of, from your book, Invented Lives. And thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. It's been a pleasure. That was Andrea Goldsmith, uh, and her book Invented Lives is out now through Scribe. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. Stay with us uh, because very soon I will be playing you an interview with author of Looking for Alla Brandy, Melina Marchetta. She'll be talking about her latest book, The Place on Dalhousie. That's all coming up on Triple R. Stay with us. Three Triple R. You're listening to Triple R. The show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Martha is still living in the house she once shared with her husband, Seb, before he died, a house she must now share with her troubled stepdaughter, Rosie, who disappeared for two years after her father's death and has now returned with a baby and an intractable resentment against the woman who she feels supplanted her mother. Both must now somehow live under the same roof in circumstances that feel increasingly unbearable. Thrown into the mix is Jimmy, who met Rosie up north and has now been drawn back into her orbit and Martha's high school crush Ewan now in his 50s and suddenly showing an interest. This is the story of the place on Dalhousie, the latest novel by Looking for Alibrandi author Melina Marchetta. I caught up with Melina when she was in Melbourne a few weeks back and this is what she had to say. Melina Marchetta, welcome to Backstory. Thank you Mel. The Place on Dalhousie is just a wonderful book. I got ridiculously involved with the characters, I have to say. I whizzed through the book and I really would love you to introduce uh, this book, the plot and some of the characters to listeners. Okay, so it's it's about two women, Martha and Rosie, and, um, and they both refuse to move out of a home. They... 
um, believe you know, belongs to them. One lives upstairs, one lives downstairs. And it's about the communities that develop inside that home, but also outside. And it brings back some of the characters from my earlier work. Um, I introduced Jimmy and his group of friends in Saving Francesca when they were 17, and then in The Piper Sun when they were 21, and now um, they're 25. So it's it's a multi-generational um, book and it's just relationships, community and everything else that has to do with everyday life. You have this unique ability to really make characters feel immediately real and there's a lot to I guess the depth of you know how much history you have with these characters that you can really feel like you know them almost uh, straight away. So it's certainly an experience that I had while I was reading this book. Uh, but I do want to, I, I really want to talk about the setting of the book because the majority of it really is is sort of revolving around this house, mm. uh, which the, Martha and uh, her, I think she refers to her as her step demon yes. in an initial um, kind of introduction. Uh, her stepdaughter um, you know, living together in this kind of really incredibly hostile relationship. I found it immediately kind of anxiety provoking because you could really feel the kind of tension between the two of them and how difficult that must be as a living arrangement. What, where did this relationship come from? I think, you know, growing up, you always heard stories about, um, especially when you come from Italian families, not that it happened in our family, but you hear about, you know, the dispute over a house. Um, and there's something about, um, I suppose it's the confines of a house that I love the idea of throwing a whole lot of people sometimes in these confines and seeing how they work things out. And, you know, I lived in a house once that had an upstairs and downstairs and it was a tiny house but upstairs my area you know I had a bedroom I had a little living area I had a bathroom and a lovely view and um, I couldn't have lived up there on my own it, it's it was my own house but I remember thinking a little family you know could live up there and so with this house I just expanded that a bit and thought well what if someone lived upstairs someone lived downstairs and the tension between these people it's quite unspoken they really don't speak to each other it's only when someone comes into that house who almost becomes the you know the middle person for them and it, it's just you know, for me, it's about what happens when you're forced to um, to live in an environment um, and, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to spend the rest of your lives not speaking to each other or are you going to find a common ground? In a way, this is a haunted house though, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, both of the characters are very much tied together and you know, essentially held apart, if you like, by grief. Yes. Uh, their tension between uh, each other is really the result of who they've lost and mm. and those shared losses, which is a really interesting, I guess, um, theme for you to play with because as the book progresses, you sort of wonder where that's going to go because mm. they actually have a lot more in common yes. than at first they appear to. Um, let's talk about some of the other characters. Jimmy's a wonderful character um, who kind of comes into the book very early on. You sort of um, meet him through the the eyes of Rosie um, when she first kind of encounters him. Talk to me a little bit about um, Jimmy now that he's a little bit older. Well, you know, when, you, when you've written characters before, it's really difficult because you've got to make sure that they have grown, that they're not the same beloved characters that a reader must might have loved at 17. But you also have 
have to make sure that there's traces of that person. So, you know, I had to work out where is he. And the one thing I did know is he's lost, he's, he's floating. And I knew that Rosie was lost and floating. So I had to find a way for them to meet. And they meet nowhere near this house. They meet, meet up in North Queensland, you know, in the middle of a flood. Um, but, you know, Jimmy's one of those characters he is so flawed he you know at the moment at when the story begins he's stuck in Queensland there's nothing wrong with being stuck in Queensland but he's pretty much stuck in Queensland because he's on a good behavior bond and he can't leave but he's just got a gorgeous heart and you know so he's a good person who you know sometimes does the wrong thing or you know is quite lost and if it wasn't for his friends back home who he can't get back to really they're the people who in some way give him community so it was just kind of a perfect location and state of mind to bring two lost characters together and for them to you know work out how how they feel if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Melina Marquetta about her latest book, The Place on Dalhousie. Now, there's some other kind of peripheral characters. Uh, they're all very well fleshed out. Uh, obviously, you think a lot about uh, your characters and who they are. Um, this is very much, you know, there's these continued relationships from childhood, childhood, from, you know, from school. And I love what you do with them. There's a particular relationship, uh, you know, between, I guess, uh, um, Martha and uh, a man that she sort of had a crush on, I guess, when they were kids. But, you know, their power dynamic was very different when they were at school. Also, her relationship with this um, this guy's kind of sister mm. and with other, you know, other members of their sort of previous social group. And I use that sort of term a little uh, kind of advisedly because actually they sort of hated each other yeah. at school. Why did you decide to play around with this? Because I just think it's a really, it feels really honest. Well, I, I like my best, my one of my closest friends I've known since I was 12 um, and we, I mean, we see each other all the time but we see quite a few people from that world and it mightn't be that we've always seen each other. We bumped, although I've seen, you know, particular people along the way, we re-bumped into someone just recently who lost her husband and, that, you know, as older as we are, it's a pretty young age to lose your husband so then what you do when you get together is you speak about school a lot and sometimes I think who you were at school um, you're rem you're remembered for that for the rest of your life regardless of whether mm. you've written novels or you know all of that and so for me you know for, for Martha to have her group of people I want them I wanted them to be people she knew when she was younger who were kind of frenemies in a way they had to hang out with each other but there was tension between them and I just, I've just found this as, you know, an, an adult or someone who's got older, that those tensions mean nothing, you know, when you get together because you forget all that pettiness and the conversations that you have are so much richer. And this isn't a negative about men, but you speak about men less than you used to when you were a teenager or in your 20s or in your 30s. And that's what I wanted to do with these women. And there's still that friction there. They're still in part who they were back then, but they've just moved on and it, it's it's about 
kind of the community they develop as as you know women who um, who shouldn't be making as many mistakes, but they're still making mistakes. So, you know, I don't think you ever get it together. I particularly love the relationship between Martha and Sophie. Yes. Uh, it's wonderful because I, I have these friendships with people that I've had for a very long time and they are like family. Mm. And in some ways, Martha really is lacking on the family front. Yes. So this kind of extended friendship group, you know, for all the kind of past tensions and maybe some current ones is really her family. Yes, definitely. And, you know, my best friend who's Sophie in the story is Greek and I have so many close Greek friends, um, including, you know, my publisher of my young adult, um, Laura Harris. So you're always in conversations about crazy family stuff. My best friend isn't Greek. She's um, she's Aussie, Anglo, whatever you want to say. And I actually dedicated the novel to her. And I remember when, you know, I remember when her mother died and going to see her and she you know she wasn't even 40 yet i remember she was at the door and she said I, i'm an orphan because her father had died and i remember saying to her you can't be because you've got me and you've got my family and her children are my godchildren her godchildren are sorry my godchildren are my child's godchildren so we are a family and i remember at her mum's funeral or her dad's funeral i did the eulogy so that to me is family, you know, it's, it's I don't know, it's something that's not um, defined in, in any other way. And so when I was, speak, when I was writing about, um, you know, both Martha and um, Sophie, that's what I was really um, writing about, you know, that longevity, but also you just morph into, you know, each other's lives, you go to each other's Greek, mm-hmm. you know, Easter and family and the whole thing. And um, that was important to me, but they're still prickly like the way they speak to each other especially in emails it's just like you know I hope people don't think at the beginning they're awful to each other that's just the way they speak oh, to each I other. Oh I absolutely immediately just had a great warmth for that and I think that there was also this really beautiful kind of you know joke that happens uh, some of the way into the book where um, you know Martha misses out on uh, on Greek Easter I yes. think it was and then you know Sophie's mum basically is obviously really annoyed and so Sophie says yeah she was so annoyed with you that she only put aside and then goes on to yeah, list a list a whole lot of things a whole lot of food that she's frozen for Martha yeah. in her anger which I thought was just adorable you know in cultures where food is love uh, I, I really uh, wanted to kind of make an observation I guess that many of your readers have been completely enamored of you and your work since looking for Ala Brandy uh, and I feel like when we talk about writers and and worlds that they build and you know connections uh, with books we often talk about their cosmology but I sort of really feel like reading your work feels like community in mm. a sense is that how you think oh, about your definitely past? yes I do and I, I was saying I've been saying this all week and even at my book launch where it was a um, private one it was just family and friends um, it's a novel about community because I've always belonged to one I you know I was born into a massive one um, you know my ex, my family and extended family we saw each other every Sunday at my grandmother's place there would have been over 30 of us um, and then next door was my great aunt and her family so you know you had that kind of may self like it was just already there and then you've got that community from being at school and everywhere else but I think I search for it and there have been times where I've run away from it you know even where I've lived I've just thought I don't want to deal with all of that and you know it's not I don't want to be one of those people that say oh now that I've got a child 
but you know my child came to me in a in a different sort of way because she was my foster child first and one of the the first things they reinforce is you know what communities do you have and I remember I moved for her like I just I loved where I lived I loved my little house that I described but it wasn't the right place for um to raise her and I moved closer to where I grew up in in almost the area that I said I'd never moved to and I just love it like I just love so much that you know I know most of my neighbors we walk to school we just know so many people and it's more for her. Like I love the fact that she has got such a strong sense of place. So for me, I'm searching for those um, places for us. And so when I wrote this novel, I felt it was, um, it's kind of a, a love song to it because communities also drive you crazy and there is a lack of individuality. And I'm always trying to write novels about how to stay individual when you are surrounded by, you know, um, a community. And I think that's difficult because you can be so like-minded and I'm not a big fan of like-minded. Now, I, I have to finish this conversation by talking once again about the relationship between Martha and Rosie because that's really the centre of this book. Um, Rosie, I think I said to you, uh, she's awful, I love her. Mm. Uh, I kind of feel that way about her. Um, I guess uh, Martha is a much more empathetic character. You really feel the warmth from her. All of the other characters immediately sort of gravitate towards her. But Rosie is kind of, I guess the real sort of hero of the book in a Mm. sense. Um, She's kind of an atypical character, you know, female character quite often. um, Female characters are often given these much more sort of accessible traits. Mm. I like that she's thorny and difficult to understand and that she's kind of pushing the world away in the way that she is, uh, obviously, as, as a character rather than someone going through that. Talk about how you created Rosie and and how you feel about her as a character. Well, I love, love, love Rosie. I'm very protective over Rosie because I know that it will be easy. It's always easy to love Jimmy. Jimmy can make all the mistakes in the world and he will be forgiven in a way that Rosie won't. I sometimes think that's a gender thing as well. Um, I'm so glad that I started the novel through Rosie's point of view because I think if I had started it through Martha's, I don't think that the reader would have caught on to the depth of Rosie. But one of the first things that I did with Rosie, she's so young as well. That's one thing that people have to remember. When she first comes into the story, she's 19 and she's 21 for most of the story. And that's pretty young today. But the thing with Rosie is one of the first things, apart from her being, um, I hate using that word prickly, but prickly and hostile in ways, is that she is so fantastic with old people. You know, even when someone is treating her badly, she has this um, patience. And for me, I plant that in the mind of the reader to say, you know, she's decent, so forgive her for the way she is. And she's grief-stricken and, you know, she's been a bit wild and she's wild because she lost her mother young, she's bitter because her father remarried after 11 months, all those things. So, you know, I just felt that... Um, she didn't need taming. I did not want her tamed. But I just felt that the one thing that goes through the whole story is that she does have a heart and um, she does have empathy for other people and she just needs the right people to be able to see that. And I think that Jimmy is one of those people and also the, the um, once again, 
um, strangely hostile but beautiful relationships that revolve around her because she's worth knowing, I think. For me, she's one of those people that I want to say get to know her because she'll probably be a friend for life. I feel like she she kind of is a little trapped in a sort of angry adolescence in a way because, you know, of these incredibly awful things that have happened during that period of her life. She does remind me a little bit of, you know, some of my friends now, almost teenage children in that kind of, you know, mute hostility. Uh, And also one bad relationship after another. You uh, You know, you get a sense in backstory that she's spent her life just following, you know, deadbeat guys because she's had nothing else. So it's just... Um, for me, it was important that she takes control of her life, but she doesn't have it all sorted out. I didn't want, I just don't think you do at that age or at any age. So I didn't want there to be this miraculous, by the way, this has happened to me and I'm going to be the best person in the world. Um, but she's, as I said, I feel very protective over her because I think she's the type of girl that society could be critical about and, and I don't want to hear it. So if anyone even tries to say, but I just say, no, she's, you know, she's gone through a lot. Just deal with it. So, Well, Melina, um, I really do want uh, to recommend this book Thank to you. people, especially uh, because we've we've spent a lot of time discussing the, the relationships in this book and I, I just really want to stress how much I got involved in, um, in the lives of this community that you've created and I want to thank you for that. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us today on Backstory. Thanks, Mel. Three, triple... You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.